Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's been quite a week for the BBC. A new chairman has been nominated, my old feedback boss Samir Shah, and the government has also delivered a licence fee settlement well below that which the BBC had been told it would get. Tear up those spending plans and start again. Then Gary Lineker started tweeting again, and the former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, alleged that a non-executive member of the BBC board, Sir Robbie Gibb, had interfered in the appointment of a new chair of the industry regulator, Ofcom which is not what a board member is supposed to do. And then, of course, criticism has continued from all sides about the corporation's coverage of the Middle East conflict. They're shooting the messenger again. Samir Shah had hardly any time to reflect on all of these things before he had to head down to Parliament on Wednesday morning to be scrutinised by a committee which has to approve his nomination as BBC chair or not. To reflect on the enormity of Dr Shah's intray, I'm joined by a former trustee of the BBC, Mark Damaser, now chair of the Booker Prizes, a former deputy head of BBC News, and, of course, a former controller of Radio 4. Mark Damaser, welcome to the podcast. As I promised you, I will not ask extremely difficult questions about the performance of Tottenham Hotspur this season and why they go up and down and the torture they're inflicting on people like you, who in fact have your own blog about it. I do want to start by asking you, did you ever dream about being... Uh, because, you know, we've just seen Samir Shah testifying in front of a pretty tough parliamentary committee. Did you ever want to be chairman of the BBC? Uh, I had some yearnings. That was more when I felt that some of the people who were being mentioned or were appointed were, in my view, not ideal. And I got anxious that the BBC wouldn't be in safe enough hands. I might have been precipitate when I was making some of those judgments because some of those people probably turned out fine. And Samir uh, Shah is more than legitimate. He's a highly qualified choice. It also occurred to me and has done for some time that I'm not the kind of person who would be appointed by this government and possibly other governments too. Now, why? Why would they? Sorry, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to encourage you to be vainglorious. I mean, it's against your character. But, you know, why wouldn't they have appointed you? What's the black mark on the Damaser book? I'm not a partisan figure, but I think over the last at least 10 years and possibly a bit further back, the nature of these appointments means that if they have a suspicion that in some way you are not really aligned with their particular worldview, they tend to knock you back a bit in the way that the public appointment system works. And I've seen that both as subject and object. That is to say, I've sat on panels in which I've noticed, not, I should say, for broadcasting, but for other jobs, where there's been a certain amount of anthropological instinctive tribalism that's on display. What you mean, I've heard this too, and I've heard, in, you know, the, it's not just the Conservative Home website encouraging people to apply for things, it's being a positive attempt to try and ensure that the chairs or key members of public institutions are sympathetic to the government in power. Yes, and I, I think there is a bit of that. It's a sort of soft form of, of corruption. I have to say, I don't think that Samir is caught up in that at all. They seem to me this time round, and this could be something to do with the way Rishi Sunak runs his government as opposed to the way that Boris Johnson ran his government. But it looks to me as if they've run a perfectly proper process and have had a perfectly proper outcome. So this is nothing to do with Samir. But I would say that in general both from my own limited direct experience, I'm not a huge sample size. And from what I've heard from others, 
There is exactly that tendency, which is to appoint people who you think are going to be aligned with your particular worldview. And some of these jobs uh, just don't work like that. So I think for that reason, not because I'm a hugely partisan figure, I'm not, and I write and broadcast, and I'm pretty careful not to be party political prescriptive in what I write. And I've dished out some punishment, for lack of a better phrase, to politicians of all stripes when I feel that they've abused language in the way they've expressed their arguments. But um, be that as it may, I don't think that I'm very obviously appointable and I don't think that I would at any of these stages have necessarily been the right person in any event. Well, looking at the way in which uh, Samir's rigorous questioning from the Commons went, I mean, my personal opinion was they did rather well, actually. Uh, But uh, until they got to this rather difficult question with Robbie Gibb and uh, the non-executive director, and basically the accusations derive from Indeen Doris's book, which suggests that, or says clearly, that Robbie Gibb, Sir Robbie Gibb, former BBC, of course, employer and uh, former uh, definitely uh, supporter of the Conservative Party and so on, uh, interfered or attempted to interfere with the appointment of the chair, the Ofcom chair, uh, the most important job, if you like, the regulator's job. There was also a separate allegation that he went to the Newsnight office uninvited to lecture them about impartiality as a non-executive director. Now, of course, we don't absolutely do the evidence, and Samir Shah was very clear to say he wanted to find that out. But in principle, is this a serious matter of concern or not? Uh, Well, it might very well be a reportable story. I mean, whether it is a story that would fit into any particular programme's agenda depends an awful lot on what other stories they're considering. I mean, the point about broadcasting, as you well know, Roger, is it's a very compressed form of grammar. You don't have quite the amount of space that you might have in a newspaper, though I suppose BBC Online could have a look at it. Uh, But you'd have to have a look at it to see whether it passes a threshold, that there is enough evidence that makes it a story that's worth investing your time and effort on. But that's a question mark about whether you report it or the BBC programmes have reported it and John Nichols and the MP involved was was saying they hadn't. But as an issue, if you were sitting on the BBC board and you'd seen a fellow board member, non-executive member, do that, would you think that's a real matter of concern? They may have, if the evidence stands up, crossed a line. In a word, yes. Um, I did sit on the BBC board and never came across behaviour of the type that is alleged, and so let's stress that, alleged around Robbie Gibb. Uh, I don't know Robbie Gibb very well, and I don't think of itself the fact that he was a known Conservative is an issue at all. There is a tradition, for better or worse, of people with uh, quite significantly obvious political tastes uh, on more than one side being appointed to the BBC board. But then, as everybody knows, once you're on the BBC board, you're expected to behave in a way that upholds the BBC's impartiality and is scrupulously able to represent it. So the question about Robbie Gibb is not that he is and was a well-known Conservative. That's fine. The question is whether his behaviours, when he is occupying this post are appropriate to somebody who is on the BBC board. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, And I agree with Samir that we ought to have uh, a fuller understanding of what it is that he did or didn't do, I dare say. But does that mean you think it's worthy of inquiry? Uh, I think that if a programme wanted to look at it, it would be fine if um, uh, either Elan Kloss-Stevens, the current acting chair, very splendid, I might add. I know her and I think she's terrific. 
um, or somebody I, I don't know at all, as in Richard Sharp, had felt that Robbie Gibbs' behaviour was falling below uh, the expected threshold of a BBC board member, yeah, then it would be worthy of inquiry. But I don't know the detail and I don't know whether or not there have been those discussions within the board or not. I simply don't know. Uh, and, and briefly, before we get on to the main burden of this interview, which I hope will be about the future strategy that the chairman, or the difficult issues the chairman will be faced with, can we just deal with the very quickly with Gary Lineker's latest tweet, former Spurs player, of course, at one time. Um, I had to. Yes, I'm strictly impartial on, 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 on Gary Lineker matters. That is to say that his heroic performances for Tottenham don't influence my judgment on his heroic performances as presenter of the match of the day, nor his less than heroic performances on social media. It's the second one, isn't it? Of the two things that have happened recently, he signed a letter together with others criticising the government's policy of Rwanda. As I read that, that's within the rules and so on. He then tweeted something which clearly, in my view, I think in the view of also of Samir Shah, because he said that, um, crossed the line in terms of civility and an ad hominem attack on a cabinet minister and so on. Um, so I think there's no question. He's, 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 I really think he's broken the rules, which are very good. But what do you do about that? I mean, if you, if, you fire him, you may, if you fire him, you may well find that a significant number of people are not prepared to appear on Match of the Day. If you don't fire him, then these guidelines seem to be worthless. So, Roger, can I sort of slightly tediously use my own language to describe what's going on? I mean, I think, um, let's just make up a phrase. I mean, he's dancing on the edge of the border of the policy. I mean, I don't know Gary Lineker. Let's give him some credit, which is that I suspect that he's struggling quite hard himself, at least to a degree, about where he feels his conscience impels him and thus the exercise of his right to freedom of speech and his sense of the responsibilities that he's got to the BBC, not least as a result of the recent revision of the policy. I mean, I think it's less than four months ago that John Hardy, the former chief executive at ITN, came up with this new set of guidelines. And I think we can agree that, I mean, what Gary Lineker is doing at the very least is pushing at the edge of it. I'm probably not prepared to go any further. I mean, look, for one thing, there are a couple of things that I don't know that haven't yet emerged, which is whether or not he spoke to anybody at the BBC before he pushed out his particular tweet. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. In any event, what's been published is, I can see entirely from Tim Davies' point of view, pretty irksome. So is, would your advice, whatever the, whatever the right or wrong of this, would your advice, should Gary Lineker ask it an extremely unlikely event, uh, Gary, think of the BBC a bit more than you are doing, and stop it. Well, I mean, I think Gary does care about the BBC and has an understanding of public service broadcasting, and it may be that he interprets the new guidelines in a way that means that he thinks he has satisfactorily squared the circle. But whether that's right or wrong, he's created a furor. A, a director general under massive pressure is distracted by what is, in a, in a way, a minor issue. But the Conservatives' papers, in particular, will continue to go on and on and on about. So, in the interests of the BBC, would it not be better for Gary to withdraw somewhat? Well, I think Tim's got a choice. Um, I'm not going to give you uh, an absolutely clear-cut answer. And forgive me. I mean, I think Tim's got a choice. He can either bring Gary in for what might be the last of the yellow cards that are available in his pocket, and to say, look, Gary, I mean, you clearly feel very, very strongly around these issues, and there's much to admire about your sense of conscience. That's not to say whether Gary is right to translate his conscience into the particular critique of the policy. That's not what I'm doing here. But he's obviously feels very strongly about it. 
you know, you've read the guidelines, you've pushed this out, but as I say, none of us know whether or not there was any pre-match chat before the tweet was published with the BBC. But you're finding it increasingly difficult. And you can see the extent to which I know you don't wish this to be the case, but it has become a major, major distraction. And I don't want you to stop exercising your conscience if that's what you feel you need to do about Rwanda and immigration. But given that you are, and it's been made clear in the recent revision of the guidelines, associated with one of those programs, which gives you an extra degree of responsibility, and you carry the burden, and maybe you think it is a burden, Gary, of the BBC's reputation on your back, and the BBC's reputation for impartiality, even though you're not a news and current affairs presenter, and even though you've got some licence. You know, we can't, we can't, we can't. Either you do that, or Tim Davey will think having had conversations with Gary, which I don't know about, none of us know how many interactions there have been between them, or between representatives of Gary and representatives of Tim, that enough's enough, and I'm not prepared to call it, because I don't know enough about those sorts of conversations and what sort of warnings Gary had been given, and even what sort of conversation he'd had with Tim after the recent revision. But would you agree that actually it's about the last thing the BBC needs at the moment, is this sort of essential diversion, given the issues that face it? Roger, as you will know, there are so many last things that the BBC doesn't need. The list is endless. There's always something that could happen that might be even more distracting than Gary Lineker's, how can I put it, spat with Grant Shapps. Distracting though that it may be, and rather as I might be with my BBC hat on, wishing that there wasn't that distraction. I don't know that it's the biggest distraction in the world. I mean, I think most people by now surely have got the key point which is, or at least a key point, Gary is not a news and current affairs presenter. He's not in any way carrying, as it were, the BBC's journalism around with him. The question about Gary, and that was the central dilemma which led to the setting up of the review of the guidelines, is whether nevertheless, despite the fact that he's nowhere near news and current affairs, Gary is so associated with the BBC that sometimes you might feel even irrationally people have an impression of the BBC's journalism derived from Gary's tweets, even though surely they must understand, or you'd think they would, that Gary is not a news and current affairs animal. And there's always been a blurred edge about that and about the public's perception of the BBC as a result of Gary's activities. But let's make it clear, Gary is nowhere near news and current affairs or a news and current affairs presenter. Mark, could I ask you about the the uh, licence fee increase that's just been awarded, which is significantly below that which the BBC expected and says was promised. What are the consequences of that for the corporation? Well, I can see why the BBC feels it needs to be polite, um, because there are going to be some people who pay the licence fee for which the sum that is saved by reneging on the deal that was made... Uh, is enough that it makes a difference and enables them to live through their cost of living stress. And I think that's fair enough. But I have to say that it is reneging on the deal. And for a lot of people, the difference between what they will be paying now and what they would have been paying had the government not reneged on the deal is not so large on an individual basis. But if you multiply it by the number of people who pay the licence fee, it makes a lot of difference to the BBC. And it means that less content is originated, more cuts have to be made. And it gets harder and harder for the BBC to provide value for money when it doesn't get the economy of scale advantages over the whole sum that they had thought, they, the BBC, thought they were going to get from the licence fee settlement. Does it mean that the BBC effectively has to tear up their plans, you know, that they're never 100% sure, but you're assumed now they have to go back and they have to re-examine things of real importance that will have to be cut? 
So precisely, the BBC has been operating under an understanding that the licence fee was going to be put up by more than it's actually been put up and would have made programme plans and any number of investment decisions based on that. And now they found out quite late in the day that the government has decided that's not going to be the case. BBC had no alternative, and I can see this, but to go along with it. But we shouldn't underestimate the degree of disruption. But, I mean, it fits what's been going on for a long, long time. And uh, let's be clear about it. I never thought that any of the Conservative governments uh, since 2010 uh, were going to try and take on the BBC to destroy it because I think in that way would have been political and electoral madness. Because for all our fury with the BBC and our mixed feelings about it, I think that if they had tried a front-on assault on the BBC, I don't think even Boris Johnson would have wanted to have done that. Instead of which, they have shrunk it. Now, some of it has been genuinely understandable because of the country's economic conditions. I get that. But some of it is not just about that. There has been a genuine desire, I think, to extract more and more money out of the BBC and to shrink it. And then to say, after they've shrunk it, oh, but look, you know, the BBC isn't creating all of these programmes that it used to. And why is the BBC cutting X, Y and Z? And isn't that a shame? And, you know, look how wonderful Netflix and Amazon are. And in fact, Netflix and Amazon in many ways do, you know, very, very good things uh, and Disney and so on. But they're not doing the range of things that the BBC does. And it's nowhere near, in my view, the same value for money proposition that the BBC is. But if you uh, run this self-perpetuating strategy of shrinking the BBC at every available opportunity, and I, I say sometimes I've seen exactly the economic reasons why, but if at every point you shrink the BBC and put as much financial pressure on it as you think you can get away with. It's not very surprising when the BBC finds it harder and harder to provide the full gamut of services that it would have expected to provide it with a slightly more generous licence fee settlement, and that has been successive government's chosen strategy, and I don't like it. So you're looking at a combination of political prejudice, uh, the needs of the wider economy as they would see it, and government hypocrisy by, if you like, not willing the means and then complaining about the ends. Yes, I mean, we can argue about the shadings of all of that, but all of those factors are in play. I think that success... I mean, look, all governments are hostile to the BBC when they're governments. I have, I can tell you, extremely good and strong memories of what it was like with uh, you know Tony Blair's government over Iraq. So let's not, not make this a single party issue. But for sure, successive Conservative governments would have wished in their mind's eye to shrink the BBC because they don't believe in it in the way that I believe in it. I mean, there, there's a lot of rhetoric about it. it's one of the nation's glories. I've seen the latest government consultation has all of that in it. But honestly, a lot of the time that that has been spouted, it's been spouting. I mean, some of them believe in it, some of them don't. To be honest, I think that the dominating uh, strategy to the BBC has been to try and pressure it and shrink it. And as I say, there have been times I can see where the acute need for being very careful with individual licence payers' expenses has made it more than understandable that the licence fee has been a long way away from what the BBC would wish. But this is a concerted strategy that happens every single time, and I don't think it's a coincidence. And the one thing which I think is often gets neglected, this is taking, this is jobs. Lots of programmes are made by independents, so you have a situation in the broadcasting industry at the moment with a real advertising problem. You have ITV cutting back, you have Channel 4 cutting back, and if you cut back the BBC, what you are effectively doing is taking money out of the broadcasting economy as well and creating more unemployment. So it isn't just a question about the BBC. The consequences are felt throughout the industry. 
I mean, what has happened, and very little has been made of this, and I would um, advise you, Roger, or somebody to do a little bit of work. I haven't done it before doing this podcast with you, which is to look at the originated British content figures from the main broadcasters and have a look at it. And I think the BBC is able to originate substantially less content than used to be the case. And I suspect that's going to be true for the other main public service broadcasters. Now, to some extent, and that's be, you have to be scrupulous in the argument, to some extent that's been made up by content that has been generated, particularly in drama, by, as it were, Netflix or Amazon or whatever, or the streamers. But then you've got to look quite carefully at that content. Every now and then they come up with you know, gold dust, which sounds, feels and smells British for British audiences. So, I mean, Slow Horses is obviously everybody's favourite example at the moment. I love it too. And that's fine. But it's a very, very different model, the way the streamers go around originating, creating, marketing and choosing and commissioning its content from what you do if you're a public service broadcaster in Britain, not just the BBC. And so the squeeze on the BBC is a squeeze on the criteria of British talent, British audiences in all their multiplicity, not one single audience. And uh, there's just less of it. Uh, and it has all kinds of consequences. And the BBC can't fight it because they have to keep within their budget envelope. And it's kind of inevitable. And then leads to this charge, which you make, of hypocrisy, where everybody stands up and says, but, you know, they're cutting my favourite programmes. How can they? And the answer is because they haven't got enough money to make all these programmes that you want them to make. So don't be surprised. And maybe they shouldn't have cut yours. They're going to cut somebody else's and they're going to be unhappy. But if the BBC has only got what it's got, and it would be crazily irresponsible and a total failure of governance if they overspent, please don't come, you know, crying when your particular programme is either decimated or worse removed entirely, because somebody somewhere has to take the strain. Right, well, let's move on to the the, the, the entry. I mean, we're spoiled for choice here, haven't we? If you look at Samir, this, the, the latest or shortest thing, I suppose, is um, the licence fee increase is not what they were hoping for. There are further cuts to come. He's got a general election then to navigate in the next year and hope he gets through that. And there'll be intense pressure placed upon him. There's a charter review coming up for the BBC a little further beyond that. And there's a sustained attack on the licence fee. Although the interesting question, obviously, is when you look at the alternative to the licence fee. Oh, yes. You know, people say, well, mm, yeah, I don't like any of those either. Um, it's it, well, We're spoiled for choice. But let's talk about what I think initially is missing. And I wonder whether you think it is the case too, is that in the past, the BBC, when they were faced with the cuts and, and uh, or reductions in income, and uh, us on the whole said, OK, but we'll get on with it and does it. And uh, what the people have sometimes been saying is, look, there's no wider debate about public service broadcasting or media. What we need, let's decide what the role, if there is role for one, let's decide if the BBC is the best way of delivering it or part of the best way of delivering it, and then get to discuss how we pay for that. Do you think it's now time for a proper debate about what public service is? Because there is this existential question going on, which is, when everything else, we've got so many other alternatives, why do we still need a public service broadcaster? Do you think we do need one? What should it be doing? Well, um, you won't be surprised to hear that I do think we need one, or possibly more than one. I mean, public service broadcasting is defined by more than the BBC, although the BBC is clearly its biggest beast. I mean, that is a job for the board. Um, and when I was there, we took it very seriously. And I think so did my predecessors. But we were scuppered. 
because twice the government laid an ambush. I mean, it was bad enough the first time uh, when George Osborne did it uh, in 2010. It was really hideous when he did it the second time when I was there. I'd been on the BBC governing body, as it were, then the Trust, for about three weeks. And the next thing we know is that George has come up with a plan and plonked it down on the table. So what were these two things that, right, that uh, George Osborne, when Chancellor of the Chequer, did, which scuppered you? Well, um, what he did is he came out with uh, a number and then gave the BBC some obligations. Now, he wanted to save a chunk of money on the welfare benefits. So he wanted to make certain that uh, over 75s, uh, getting their free licence was no longer something that would have to be borne by the Exchequer and it would have to be borne by the BBC or not, depending on whether the BBC could make up its mind about how it wanted to charge or not charge people over the age of 75. And the BBC spent a long, long time thinking about it and came up with a perfectly credible answer, which is poor pensioners, those on pension credit, would not pay the licence fee and other pensioners would. Outrage, outrage, outrage. And various Conservative MPs and ministers said the BBC had reneged on the deal with George Osborne, not a bit of it. But the main point is about consultation and what should have happened twice, both in 2010 and in 2015, was a broad consultation about what the public expected out of its principal public service broadcaster, backed up with polling and evidence and focus group and quality assessments and, you know, all that sort of thing. But there was no time. I mean, it was a take-it-or-leave-it deal. I'm not criticising either Director-General Mark Thompson or Tony Hall for doing a deal. They did the deal. But yes, of course, to your question, there should be an extensive attempt to find out of the many confusing and doubtless contradictory things that the public feels about the BBC to try and establish what the main patterns are, which provide some meaning for what public service broadcasting now is, and therefore shape the strategy and also shape what a licence fee settlement and charter would look like. And the key question mark here is whether the BBC should be leading that debate. And, uh, you know, criticism a lot of people have made is actually what's been going on here is a series of cuts are being made, largely without consultation. A large sum of money is being shoved into its American operations. And you can detect a pattern uh, from a board which was very heavily influenced by businessmen. And you can see for a, a, an organization preparing itself for to be a big and successful BBC business without a license fee. But that's not necessarily public service broadcasting and do you think the bbc is sort of so divided in it's trying to play it both ways that it doesn't get out and articulate things i mean for example i talked to someone very much involved with children's programming in, in three uh, three issues ago i think clearly the bbc is the only organization capable of doing this that's a problem that it reaches young people but it's the only one doing original british programming where is the BBC leading the debate and saying, if we continue to cut, cut, we need to decide on certain priorities. What about, what about children's programming? What about regional journalism we're cutting about? What about the news operation we're doing? What about a whole raft of things? We need this debate, which shouldn't be just a fix between the Chancellor and the Director General over a rushed weekend with little preparation. And, and I still can't see that debate happening if the BBC doesn't have the courage to say we've now reached the point where there are cuts to be made which frankly should not be made by the BBC without a proper consultation with the public. Well, I have some sympathy, but not total, because the BBC, I think, does do this consultation work and puts it out there from time to time in various BBC documents, not all of which get the coverage which I'm sure the BBC would want. So some of the BBC's thinking on a lot of these issues 
is made transparent or transparent enough. And I mean, if you take, I'm not sure this would count as a sort of whole strategy decision, but if you look at, for instance, what the BBC said when it reduced Newsnight to uh, what will be its half an hour form from its current longer form and stripped out some of the reporting and filming budget, the BBC obviously had to justify that. If you take something now already forgotten, but there was a huge brouhaha when the BBC cut out Victoria Derbyshire's morning talk programme on telly, on BBC One. Yeah, but this is this old poster, Mark, this old postdoc, this isn't saying we're considering a range of options, here we are, let's last what we think. This is, we've done this, because we in the BBC know what's best for you, and by the way, we'll justify it. Well, that's harder, though I think that the BBC should, just to support your central thesis, I do think the BBC should go out there and try and find out periodically on a range of issues, not least coming up to licence fee and charter issues, what the public in its doubtless confused and contradictory way thinks. Of course, you're right. And there's no harm in publishing a lot of that, if not all of it. I agree with that. But in the end, you're not going to get a clear enough signal that will make it abundantly clear how to make these very difficult choices when you're losing a ton of money because the recent licence fee settlements have seen this huge squeeze on the BBC's finances. And professional people are going to have to make professional judgments. Now, where I'm with you, I think, is that those are agonising judgments. And I think the BBC should be more willing to show its workings than it sometimes does. Well, you're putting it t- deliberately tactfully. But I mean, when you were controller Radio 4, you appeared pretty regularly on the feedback, the programme I, I presented for a long time. Uh, but my general, <laughs> my general experience of the BBC, unfortunately, is that they don't do that. And essentially what they do, if they are, yeah, and if they do appear, it is to tell you a decision they've made and why they've made the right decision. And what they haven't done is set out the, the complications, the difficulties and so on. And this culture of... This is a central part of accountability, which the BBC consistently falls, falls, what doesn't do enough of. Well, I'm broadly, I'm broadly sympathetic to that. I mean, I can see that if you're the Director General and you're Tim at the moment, your currency is something you need to preserve and you can't come on to feedback every week or anything like it. And you have to ration the amount of time you give because all of these things need some preparation and consideration and OK. But in general, I have to say, I think you're right. And you're right down the ages. I've never quite understood it. The BBC, in my experience... Uh, has a lot of very, very bright, serious-minded people, not all, but a lot of very bright, serious-minded people grappling with these questions. And they're very hard questions now because of the declining budget and the increasing competition and the need to serve multiple audiences through multiple platforms uh, and all of that. Never mind about the political pressure and the competition, it's just very, very hard facing this degree of financial squeeze. I think the BBC thinks these things through very often, not always. I think they make mistakes, but they think these things through quite carefully. They are not going to satisfy everybody when they come on to feedback or indeed anywhere else to explain the outcome, because a lot of people will think the outcome is not the outcome they would want. You know, they'd rather this programme was preserved and that programme was cut and so on and so forth. But I think there's very little harm in intelligent, serious-minded people showing their workings and then saying, look, at the end of it, we have to make a judgment because we can't afford to break the budget. And you may disagree with this, but at least you've heard what it is and what the components were of the decision. And I don't know, and I'm baffled as you are, really, why the BBC um, is so reluctant to do it. You're bound to offend a lot of the audience a lot of the time when you come on and make these media appearances because they will wish for a different outcome. But what you're trying to do there is to persuade them that there's been an intelligent process of thought, 
that led to the outcome, even if you don't like it, and informs them about the pressures and the factors that are in play about any of these things, the cutting of regional current affairs programmes, what's happening to local radio, indeed the future of Newsnight, why the BBC is no longer able to provide the sports programmes that you want watched, on and on and on we can go, because these are decisions that the BBC indeed is making on a day-by-day basis because it's trying to control its budget. And it is making decisions which have strategic import, I agree with you, and I think that they should be much less shy Uh, about explaining their workings and explaining their logic. Looking further ahead, finally, um, everybody knows what's wrong with the licence fee. It's a regressive tax and people say, oh, well, there's nothing on, you know, anyway. Mind you, there's less on because the budgets have been cut. It's self-fulfilling. But if you look further ahead, most of the alternatives uh, to the licence fee are pretty... um, uh, even worse. I mean, advertising, for example, that's what a lot of people talk about, apart from bringing the problem of you're, you're not able to watch programmes straight the way through, you have ad breaks, um, is actually the advertising industry on the whole doesn't want it. And certainly lots of companies don't want it because a lot of advertising would flock to the BBC. Radio 2 would be inundated with advertising. So advertising is out the window. You then look at a more direct form of government payment, and, and uh, you and I, I suppose, would say, oops, hold on a second, you know, political interference is difficult enough. We then start to look at other forms that... Uh, and, and do you have a view uh, about if the licence fee has to go, uh, where we should be looking for a new form of funding on the BBC? So I, th- I think... Um, and Roger, as it were, forgive me, I want to reformulate it. I think the licence fee is not the question. It's a secondary question. It's a question. The real question is the universal nature of the funding. So there are some people who don't pay, and we've discussed that. So poor pensioners on pension credit don't pay over the age of 75 and so on. But most people pay, uh, provided they receive BBC programmes, whether that's online or whether it's live consumption, uh, they pay. And they own it. It's their BBC. They may get very enraged. They do. uh, And very upset and angry and cross. And that's part of the glory of it because it's their BBC. It's not my BBC. It's not the government's BBC. It's not the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sports BBC either. It's their BBC. Imperfectly, we try at the BBC or the BBC tries to give them something of value for the licence fee. That's how it's gone. Now, the mechanism is been around for a long, long, long time, and you can argue about it, whether it's best defined as being the consumption of live TV or TV online or any of the iPlayer services, all right, we can change the mechanism. And there are other options. You could do it via broadband, and anybody's got broadband pays. You could definitely change the idea that everybody pays the same. And you could make it a little less regressive. Now, I'm interested in that. I think it's worth exploring, though one shouldn't get the impression that poorer people use the BBC much less than richer people. That's not true. In fact, a lot of the BBC's consumption comes from people who are not that well off and it may still represent value for them. Yeah, I think the latest survey showed that I think 26% of what we might call working class viewing is of BBC. All listening is of the BBC. It's still a central part of their lives. Absolutely. Uh, So it's not about, for me, the mechanism as a piece of theology. I can lose the licence fee as long as I feel that the idea that everybody's got their uh, stake in it and pays for it survives. I mean, and why? One, because I think that defines the way the corporation goes around its business. It's constantly got to think of its 
very different but very, very interesting and important audiences that it needs to serve with things that are of value to those audiences enough of the time they feel they're getting something out of it. And there are countless surveys, and it depends how you ask the question, but in my view, and there's a lot of survey evidence, the BBC still does a pretty good job at doing that, and that's backed up by the regulator, because that's Ofcom's view too. And there are gigantic economies of scale. If everybody or very, very large numbers of people are paying for it, you derive a huge amount of value, which if you chop it up into subscription bits, you know, I'll have Match of the Day in Strictly, but I'll do without Panorama. Oh, but I wouldn't mind a bit of EastEnders and actually I quite like Radio 1. By the time you end up paying for those things as individual elements, you're going to end up paying far more than if you bundle it all together and have the economies of scale that you've got out of a licence fee. Mm. The other danger, presumably, is if you narrowly defined a set of public services which can, are all those things which you think we are important and want to be there, but we don't necessarily want, you end up having a service which probably is not listened to or watched by massive sums of people, and therefore you almost guarantee that uh, that people will, the, the will to pay for that will limit. But the other thing you haven't mentioned, which I think, you know, in the end, surely is screaming at us. In the United States, we are faced with a situation where democracy may well be on trial or at stake in the next president's election. We now have a system uh, of Twitter with or X, should I say, under Elon Musk, who is now enabling conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones to come back onto onto that network. We are surrounded by um, uh, news which is so partisan and partial uh, and, uh, that, that, you know, one holds one has a mistake. If we give up the idea of an impartial, largely available to everyone organisation that at least attempts to be impartial, then there's a genuine threat to democracy, isn't there? Well, uh, I don't think you'll find it very surprising, Roger, if I'm busy cheering and whooping in my sitting room. I mean, of course that's right. Uh, Now, that's not to say, and it's a very important point, and when the BBC is behaving at its worst, it can sound imperial about these things, there are other public service broadcasters that do a tremendously good job. Not just Channel 4 News, by the way. I think ITV News has held it together, although there's a story there about being shoved around 25 years ago in the schedule because it didn't have the protections of the BBC and so on and so forth. But of course, one of the reasons why Britain is still, and thank the Lord, fundamentally different from the United States in this respect, is because there is a strong public service broadcasting sector that sets a climate for the way broadcast news, which is still the largest single way in which the British public receives its news, still is regulated in such a way that impartiality is at its core. Imperfectly executed, and we can take this example and that example, and we fuss about Gary Lineker and whether or not somebody's, you know, Hamas is called a terrorist group or not. I mean, all of these, I understand these controversies, I understand why people get exercised about it, but on the whole, if you look at the British broadcasting ecology, it functions remarkably well in providing something that feels and looks and smells and sounds like impartial news. And hooray for that. And as you rightly say, you don't have to go too far to find out what it looks like if you don't have those anchors. I'm all in favour of a rumbustious free press with lots of different flavours. I think there needs to be a wide margin for freedom of speech. I think it's great that there are lots of editorial flavours knocking around the UK. Some of it expressed rather rudely and not to my personal taste, but all of that is to the good for a democracy. But having a properly funded, properly understood, and dare I say it, respected by government, big question there, public service broadcasting corporation in the middle of it, 
has been a huge bane both to British democracy and to British public life. And it's the reason why I feel so passionate about it. I mean, I think there are yeah, many arguments for the BBC, but it's a central one. And finally, Mark, with your powers of prophecy, I can't just let you go without one question, which is, will Spurs be in the top four at the end of the season? Certainly not. Um, you know, you haven't spent as long as I've done watching this bunch to think that anything other than deferred pain is what's on offer. I mean, we last won anything of absolute significance in 1961, I think. Uh, well, I suppose the FA Cup a bit, but no, no, no. But I mean, you know, this this year is the suffering is of far more uh, aesthetically pleasing nature and far more glorious under a man who, of course, I thought was wildly inappropriate for the job. But then that's why I'm not presenting Match of the Day. Actually, I quite like to, but it's why I'm not presenting Match of the Day. Well, you know, I think there might be a vacancy shortly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Damaser, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Roger. Well, that's it for this week. Next week will be our final interview before the Christmas break, and that edition will be behind a paywall. So please consider giving us some Christmas cheer by signing up. For only £1.99 per month, not even a cup of coffee, you'll be able to find out about my take on this week's interview in my weekly blog. It's quick and easy to support us at patreon.com forward slash bewatch. The link to this can be found on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>